0: My name's Layla, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Layla! Love you, Layla! Lots and lots and lots. Oh, Lord Jesus. Awesome. awesome. I was in pageants. I do.
1: Um,
0: wow. What an awesome, awesome uh, opportunity this is. I am always amazed, and Honored and overjoyed to be standing in front of a group of of my peers to stay sober one more day. Um, I'd like to thank the host committee and Ray for asking me to be here. And you guys have offered some wonderful experiences before and after. Uh, The fire, the (laughs) light bulbs, you know, the whole Gatlinburg experience here, Um, it has been great. It really, really has. The banquet tonight was phenomenal. For those of you that missed it, please don't miss out next year because it was awesome. Um, It's just been really, really fun. It really has. Uh, Wow, I have so much uh, good stuff that's been going on, and I can't wait to get to that. So I'm going to quickly run through what it was like before, um, what happened, and, and get to the good stuff of what it's like now. I grew up in an alcoholic home, very typical, uh, you know, divorced parents. My mom was a hippie, and my dad was a conservative, so that didn't work out well. Um, and I went back and forth between the homes, so I consider myself to be a responsible hippie, and you know, only smoke good pot, and you know, then only drink beer out of a bottle. So it's uh, very sophisticated. Very sophisticated. Um, my sobriety date is September 15th of 1992, and uh, I got sober when I was 16 years old. So my drinking career started fairly young and ended fairly young. I, d- I have now been sober longer than I drank, which is really, really amazing. Um, it really is. It's 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 an unbelievable gift to finally reach that point in my life. Um, so I grew up in these alcoholic homes, and there was the typical alcoholic stuff. There was violence, and there was raging, and there was, you know, acting like it was all okay on the outside and uh, everything falling apart on the inside. But as long as the neighbors didn't know, then it was okay. And that's what I learned. I learned that if it looks okay, then it is okay. And so I studied real hard and real long on how to make it look okay. It didn't matter that it wasn't okay. It just had to look okay. And I was never good enough, and I was never pretty enough, and I was never smart enough, and I was never enough of anything. And that can only go on for so long before something has to give. And there were a series of events that happened to me. Um, I moved in. I grew up with my brother, who was very violent and very abusive. And my parents didn't really know how to or didn't – they chose not to for some reason or whatever their reasons were. There wasn't a lot of punishment put on that, so the abuse continued for a long time. And so I just put up with that. And up to this point, I would drink when I would go visit my mom when I was 8 or 9. I had my own beer stein. And, you know, that's just what we did in my family. You know, it was really neat and cute to play paper dolls and then get drunk. And I don't – you know – in my paper dolls didn't come with a beer mug, but, you know, my mom would draw one for me if I had asked her, I'm sure. Um, so I would go, and I would do these things with my mother, and then I would come back, and I would live with my father, and things would look just like Leave It to Beaver, you know. We lived in a really big, nice house on a really big lot and, you know, went to the good schools and, you know, all the, the whole nine yards. And... Um, I listened to the speaker last night, and he was talking about remembering being embarrassed to invite someone over, and I would beg and plead every Thursday night when it was like sleep overnight to please let me go stay at someone else's house, and I usually wasn't allowed, but I sure... They were like, well, you need to just invite someone over here. Well, that was not going to happen because I didn't want the rumors to start about how it really was behind the closed doors, so I didn't do too much of that, and things started things started getting worse with my brother and um, and I started needing to fill a hole inside of me that was growing progressively bigger every day and I got the opportunity to go live with my mother, who was an active alcoholic at the time and so I jumped on that opportunity and I and I went and I moved to Virginia. I grew up in North Texas and so I left Texas and went to Virginia and um, sorry. <laughs> um, I want to be in the hot tub too. Okay. Uh, Virginia, Virginia. Sorry, Ray. Sorry, Ray. Sorry. Um, so I moved to Virginia, and I decided I was going to start a new life there. And so I went to school, and I, you know, started running with the popular crowd, and I got into cheerleading, and I was dating football players, and it looked real good outside looked really, really good, and it was really, really empty inside, and the hole kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I moved in from one alcoholic home to another alcoholic home, but this alcoholic home, there wasn't any arguing. Everybody just got drunk and stoned and quiet, so that was kind of nice, and they left me alone, and, you know, I pretty much started raising myself at 12 or 13 years old. So I'd come from this incredibly controlled environment from my father, who was very, very controlling and um, moved into this one that had no rules, no boundaries, no limits. You know, it was just basically a free-for-all. So I, you know, had a free-for-all and um, started running with the fast crowd. Is that what they call it anymore? I don't think they call it that anymore, but it was the fast crowd back then. And so I was a fast girl. And um, I probably shouldn't shouldn't brag about that anymore. Anyway...
1: (laughs) Don't send
0: this to my husband. Okay. So to speed things up a little bit, um, I started running with these crowds, and and I I heard Hugh talk about how he would say things like, I'm never going to smoke, and I'm never going to do this, and I'm never going to do that. And I had a list that was, you know, like six miles long of things I was never going to do. Smoking, drinking, and doing drugs were at the very top of that. Oh, and like premarital sex. That was all at the top of that list. (laughs) That did not last very long. Um, I went to a party one day and there weren't any adults there and it was a bunch of kids and, and everybody was drinking and stuff and there had been this guy at school and he had been giving me some hard times and, and I hadn't really reported it to anybody. I just kind of wanted it to go away and um, at that party that night uh, he got me into a bedroom and cornered me and, and raped me and that very moment All the stuff that caused the hole before that came to a head, and it was too much. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it was like someone had taken a shotgun and blown me out right in the middle, like there was just nothing left there, and there wasn't any way of holding it together, and so I went home that night, and I didn't tell anybody, and I didn't tell anybody about that for three years, Um, because... I was never good enough, I was never pretty enough, I was never smart enough, and so surely that was my fault. And I was not going to tell anybody because then they would just think I wasn't good enough, I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't strong enough, I wasn't pretty enough. And so what happened was because there wasn't anything left there to keep that hole from just gaping wide open, I had to find some new way to fill it. Drugs and alcohol, great way to fill that hole is what I found. And so I started doing things like you know stealing my mom's dope, and drinking her beer. And uh, and she came home one day, and and I just started you know doing these things. And she said, "We're moving." Oh, I forgot this part. This was kind of funny. Um, they used to do these drug shows on cable back then, and. Um, I just watched this show on how West Palm Beach was the crack capital of the United States. I was terrified of crack, you know. It was really, really scary. when It was just first coming out, so it was like this big expose I just watched. Not 20 minutes later, my mom comes home, we're moving to West Palm Beach. I'm envisioning everyone on crack. In this, you know, 700,000 people all on crack. Because that's what the show was, you know, about. So I was terrified. I didn't want to leave this life. As bad as it was, it still looked good. And so as long as it looked good to you, it must be okay. Because that's all I knew. It didn't matter that I had this huge gaping hole. It didn't matter that I couldn't stand to look in the mirror. It didn't matter that I was... 13 and 14 years old, and couldn't go to sleep when I laid my head on a pillow because the noise wouldn't stop. It looked good. That's all that mattered. So we picked up and we left, and um, I declared Mondays and Fridays pot holidays. <laughs> it's helpful when you move in with a drug dealer to do that. Um, my mom had high-quality friends back then, so that's who we moved in with. Um And I learned all sorts of new tricks, you know, what shooters were and what parties were and, you know, all all the nightlife that you can imagine coming along with South Florida. That's what I started enjoying at 14 years old. And things progressed, and they got worse. And then uh, I got the opportunity to attend a new school. And it was a magnet school, and you had to audition and this, that, and the other. And and it was the goodie school, the slow crowd school, I guess you would call it. And, um... (laughs) And I said, that's it. This is where it stops. We weren't special, I promise. It wasn't the special school, it was just the slow school. Well, that would be the special school, wouldn't it? Anyway, um, so I decided, um, I made a decision. You know that decision you always make? You know that? I know some of you made it. Don't act like you haven't, because I saw you. Um, <laughs> you can't look like that without having made that decision. Uh, and the decision was it was going to be different. It was going to be different this time, and I was going to stop the drinking, and I was going to stop the drugging, and I was going to actually go to school five days a week, and I was going to participate, and um, it was easy to do that for a while. We had moved out of the the drug dealer's home, and um, so it was just my mother is the drug dealer, and so it was just us. And uh, the kids at school didn't drink, you know, they didn't know what a keg was, they didn't know what a bong was, they didn't know what a pipe, they didn't know what any of that stuff was. So it was really easy for my life to slow down a little bit. And um, so that lasted for about nine months, and I was absolutely batshit crazy um, because there wasn't anything to keep that hole from gaping open. There wasn't any medication going into that. And I was extremely violent, and um, I, was, I was the kind of person that people always loved, but they thought I loved myself even more because I was overly boastful and overly arrogant and overly in-your-face because I was terrified behind that mask. And so I thought the bigger and the better I put it out there, the less you'll know I'm feeling smaller and smaller every day. And, um, and so I started my freshman year of high school and, um, I did really well, you know, didn't do drinking, didn't do drugs. And I got a call one day in the principal's office. I guess this was in February of 91. And they, they called me in the principal's office. They said, your mom's gone to treatment. You're going to go home with your friend today. A, I don't know what treatment is. B, how dare she not call me? Um, See, I don't have any clothes, and I don't really want to go to Jenny's house. That didn't matter. They didn't really care. Um, And I didn't get it because I didn't know there was anything wrong with the way we lived. That's just how we always lived. It wasn't like I grew up in this normal house, and then one day everything changed. That was normal for me. That was just the way it was. And just because your family didn't do it, well, then that obviously meant you were the problem. You were the freaky family, not me. Um, So anyway, my mom went to treatment, and (laughs) when she came home, it wasn't pretty. There were weird people in my house, a lot. and, uh, And they were, I mean, they were there all the time, all the time. And then, except for those hour and a half when they would leave and go to that meeting place. And then they'd come back and they'd be even happier and they'd be making more noise and they were more annoying and they were, you know and I would come in and I would be so crabby because, you know, my mom told me no I couldn't have that keg party anymore and that was very disappointing because I didn't understand why just because she stopped drinking and using didn't mean I had to stop drinking and using. You know. Um that was that was a real hard time for me. I didn't I didn't comprehend that. And I didn't know why she had quit doing these things anyway. Because how can you possibly function without it? Um, and so it got really bad between my mom and I. And I started, uh, I started slowly using again. And my mom, um, my mom just kept going to meetings every day. And she kept working with others. And she kept calling her sponsor. And, um, and that lady was really annoying because she would tell my mom stuff like, don't enable her. You know, I like enablers when I was drinking. How dare you take her away from me? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah, I say. Um, and so that was a really difficult time for us. And there was a lot of um, unpleasantries in our home. Um, I went away that summer because i couldn't I couldn't take it anymore, and so I, I moved to or I moved yeah, I moved there for about um, a summer to Marble Falls, Texas, population four thousand seven, <laughs> and um there's five things to do in Marble Falls: <laughs> drink at the dam, drink in the pasture, drink at the barn, have sex at the dam, have sex at the pasture. I guess there's six. Have sex at the barn <laughs> It was a fun summer. Uh, I forgot to mention, though, that my my grandfather, uh, who I was living with at the time, my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, my grandfather was sober and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And every night after dinner, he'd say, you want to go to a meeting? You want to go to a meeting? You want to go to a meeting? You want to do your algebra homework or you want to go to a meeting? Algebra looked so good that summer, I cannot tell you. (laughs) I still managed to fail, but it looked better than going to a meeting. Um, And I avoided that. I avoided that all summer because I didn't need that. It still looked so good out there. Couldn't you see that? And, you know, when it's someone in this room looking at it, we can look right past that. And we see what's really in there. And we see the emptiness in the eyes. And we see the gaping hole in the soul. Because we identify. Because we have been there. Because the book tells us we have the power to help when no one else can. Because we've been there. And that's an awesome gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it sucks when you're the one drinking and you've got someone sober seeing it in you. Want to go to a meeting? Want to go to a meeting? Hell no, I don't want to go to a meeting. Um, So I would get these letters from my mom and she would mail me AA pamphlets. Um, I could not get away from it. It was everywhere. It was all-encompassing in my life. And um, I proceeded to drink that whole summer, every night. Every night I got drunk. And actually, it was really funny because my grandmother, uh, she brought that up to me the other day. Some, some people that I stayed with that summer um, had, had reminded her that I snuck out of their house. Um, they were like 75 and I snuck out to go get some vodka that was on the front porch that I had left out there so that when they went to bed, I could sneak out and get it. I walked all the way around the back of the house. They had the front door unlocked. I didn't even know that. Um, and they remembered that to this day. They remembered that and they didn't want to tell on me because they were trying to protect me. Um, now that is a good enabler. Um. So let me speed things up a little bit. So I, got, I, I told my mom she had been dating this guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who I really didn't like because he said stuff like, you're selfish and self-centered. <laughs> Excuse you. Hello. You're the one wearing cutoffs and flip-flops.
1: <laughs>
0: it didn't look good outside, so you must be the one that has a problem. It didn't look good outside. Can't you see I match? Hello. <laughs> That's what it was about ten years ago. That's what it was about. And you know, I did not match before I met her, so that was scary. Um, so, so I told my mom, I said, "You have to, you have to get rid of him before I'll come home." And she did, but I think it was just because it was a bad relationship. I really don't think I'm that powerful, although I did at the time. And I came home, and I immediately started back to school, and found a drinking buddy. Well, I made her a drinking buddy because I got really tired of being the slow school, and I was going to speed things up, so I did. And um, I found I found some people at the gym I was going to at the time that were probably out of college by that point in their life, and you know they were more than happy to drink and smoke dope and do whatever with underage girls. So that's what we did. Not the whatever. No, I mean like drugs. Um, I wasn't that fast yet. Um, so things progressed and I got worse and worse and worse and my disease sped up at an unbelievably rapid rate that year. Um, and I met him.
1: He was so cute.
0: And uh, we were going to get married. Because I was 16, and I knew exactly what it was all about then. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: of course, you know, we were going to wait till I finished high school. Um, but I figured that wouldn't take very long. So uh, we, we drank. That's what we did. We drank, and we partied, and we drank, and we partied, and we drank, and we partied. And um, I went away for three weeks to go visit my dad. And he slept with my best friend. In my bed while I was gone. So I came home and you have to remember I was a violent drunk. Um, So it wasn't very pretty when I got back. And I did a lot of things that summer that I'm absolutely not proud of. But what happened was, as a direct result of that, I started on a downward spiral into my bottom. And I'm forever grateful to that man for that opportunity to hit that bottom that fast. Um... And so that summer I found another him, and him liked to party more than the other one. And so that's what we did. And we partied and we partied and we partied and we partied. And I had found a little convenience store that if I wore just the right bikini top and just the right cutoff shorts, then they would sell me alcohol. And so I started, uh, I had have, I have more access to alcohol, which made things a lot easier because I had lost my connection with drugs because, A, my mother, who was the drug dealer, left, and then, B, the guy from the gym left because I had a him in my life, and so I didn't really, you know, fit his plan anymore. So um, so that summer, it was just about having a drink. And, and the, the last night I drank, We decided we were going to have the party at my house because my mom worked two jobs because she was a single mom and she was doing the best she could. And she worked from 4 to midnight. So we decided we were going to have the party at my house. And as long as everyone was out by midnight, it would not be a problem. It would be fine. Well, I started the party before anybody got there about 4.30 after my mom left. And, um, you know, you have to be a good host. And so the party consisted of me and two other guys. Because I don't know that I ever really invited anyone else except guys. But only two showed up that night. So, one of them was the guy I was dating. And I remember it hadn't... It it wasn't really that late. I don't think... I I think it was probably around 9 o'clock. And we were in my bedroom making out or whatever. And we were totally drunk. And I was going in and out of a blackout that night. And I heard this banging on my door. And we thought it was the other guy in the other room. And... um. So my boyfriend yelled some stuff, and uh, my mother yelled some stuff back,
1: um,
0: like, open, fucking the door and uh,
1: <laughs>
0: You' never seen a seventeen boy move, 17 year old boy move so fast as he did when my mother said that. Um, and he jumped up and I jumped up the best I could, and uh, I walked out in the hallway, and she didn't say anything. And I could see it in her eyes. And uh, she told them to leave. Well, she left. And I said, do not leave. She will come back and kill me. If you're here, there will be witnesses. I will be safe. Um, they're scrambling. They don't want to stay around and see my mother again. Um, so I got really, really sick. And next thing you know, there's another knock on the front door. And it was a couple from Alcoholics Anonymous, a man and a woman. Well, the man, you know what he did, (laughs) rounded up the boys. And I don't even know what their lecture was. But what happened was, and this is the moment in my life where uh, where I had my spiritual experience, and that was I sat on the edge of my bed with a woman named Jane, and I said, no, excuse me, my mouth opened and these words came out, I can't stop. And it was that simple. And uh, the next morning, I was in detox. Because, um, you know, when you got the alcoholic connection, you're in there quick. They don't want you to change your mind. <laughs> they probably would have got me in that night if they could. Um, but I wanted to pack my bag and make sure I had matching clothes. So I did that, and um, they didn't have any openings at the adolescent unit. And so I stayed in the adult unit. And this was uh, a facility called uh, CARP, and I don't remember what C-A-R-P stood for, but um, it was a very, very low bottom. It was for indigence, and um, I was, you know, this long, blonde hair, 16 cheerleader. It looked so good outside, always matched. And um, I went into this room, and they told me they were going to have to have a nurse with me 24 hours a day because I was in there with female convicted rapists and murderers and crackheads, which of course I'm terrified of crackheads because they're I'm nothing like them and um, sophisticated. Uh, and w- when I went to my first counseling session after that because I had determined that that those were the people that needed the help, and it was like Hugh shared last night, an alcoholic, even though my mother was an alcoholic and my grandfather was an alcoholic that th- that wasn't real to me what was real was the old man that lived under the bridge that had the long shaggy beard that drank out of a paper bag and I certainly was not that and um, so the first day I went in and, and, and I figured out that you have to tell them you're an alcoholic because if you don't you're never getting out so
1: <laughs> I
0: went in yeah yeah alcoholic yeah yeah drug addict yeah yeah can I go home Um, And they let me out three days later um, because I I was finished with my physical detox. And what happened was I talked the talk. I had no belief and I had no action to back that up. And so I left that that, that detox facility and didn't go into treatment and didn't go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and didn't hit my knees and didn't read a book and didn't find someone else to work with. And so I went crazy. Because that's what this drunk does when I don't have something to fill the hole. When I don't have my medicine to fill my hole, I go crazy. And so um, within the next two weeks, uh, Hurricane Andrew hit South Florida. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it was mass devastation. It was a Category 5 hurricane. And um, I went through that. And then... I started my junior year of high school, which that in and of itself is dramatic. And um, and it just got to be too much. It was just too much. Those two events, oh, and I had wrecked the only car we had. Um, sober, wrecked that car. Um, and so one day it had just been too much. And I got I got an idea. And the idea was, this is great, you're going to love this. Okay, the idea was, because those two hymns had bailed on me. It was their fault, of course. Um, and the first one, his dad happened to be like the deputy sheriff. And so I called him. I'm like, hi. Um, is your dad home? No. Is his gun home? N- uh, yeah. I was like, well, could you unlock your door? I'm going to come over and, and kill you. And hung up the phone. Called the next him. Hi. Are you home by yourself? Yeah. Okay. Get you unlock your door. I might come over and kill you. Hung up the phone. And that was my plan. And my plan was I was going to go take care of number one, then number two, and then myself. Because I'd had enough. I was done. But, you know, I liked a party, so I needed to have some people go with me. <laughs> and this is God. You know, this is this next part is God. I had to go to treatment bef- or no, what was it? Therapy. Yeah, therapy. I had to go to my therapist before my mom would let me have the car, you know, to go take care of this business I had scheduled. Um
1: <laughs>
0: Therapy. Yeah. So I shared this little plan.
1: <laughs>
0: Therapists don't like that. Um They also don't like it when the sheriff calls them and says, there is a psycho trying to kill my son. Um, So she had already got the word by the time I got to her office. And I told her, she said, is there something you want to talk to me about? And I said, well, I have this plan. Um, And I went through it with her, and I said, do you think something's wrong with that? Because... At that point in time, and I'm so grateful to to the women in this program that taught me the definitions um, of some words that I wasn't real clear on when I got here. And the definition of delusion is, we cannot differentiate the true from the false. I no longer knew true from false. I no longer could tell you right from wrong, black from white. My whole world was gray. And that's a real scary place to be. So, therapists really like to send you places when you're like that. <laughs> a lot of people like to send you places when you're like that. Um, so they had said, suggested they brought my mom in at this point, you know, um, and they suggested that I go to treatment. And they told me of this facility, and I'd seen the commercials, and there was a palm tree and a beach swimming pool shares, and at the bottom it said 14-day evaluation. What I read was 14-day vacation. <laughs> I said, sure, let's go. I'll get my swimsuit and we'll get in the car. So I went home and packed my stuff up. And I got there, and, you know, they make you sign the papers, make you think, yeah, you're just, you know, just that little 14-day evaluation, whatever. 86 days later, they let me go home, and um, I never saw that freaking pool, you know that? And there was no beach. Um, There was a gym and an obstacle course. That's what was there. So I stayed in that facility, and I helped so many people while I was there. It was fun. It was a beautiful thing. Should have been in therapy. Whew. I should have gotten some checks for that stuff. That was good, that was good advice I was given, I'm sure. Um, and I got out of there, and they said, you need to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you need to find a sponsor. And you need to read the big book and you need to work the steps and you need to go to meetings consistently and you need to find a home group and get active and get involved. And I didn't know what any of that meant and I wasn't real sure I was going to do it. But uh, my mom, of course, had scheduled for a pickup of one drunk member to go to a young people's meeting. And so I went to a young people's meeting in uh, Palm Beach Gardens and he was there. Better believe, willing to go to any lengths at that moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And he said, and I will never forget it. Hi. Are you new? (laughs) A match. Um, That was important. Remember, it's still important at this time. Um, And he said... Well, he was on his way out. He was going to. Uh, go, he had just come from the six thirty meeting, and I was going into the eight o'clock meeting. And he said, "Well, keep coming back." And I said, "You betcha.
1: <laughs>
0: Anytime." Um, so I did. I came back for a long time for him, and and I, and I and I found a sponsor. And I want to put this out there because if there's anyone new. Um, in Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. I heard that word, and like I told you, there were some women in this program that taught me new definition to some words I didn't know. And when I got here, and I heard the word sponsor, the only thing I had to relate that to was, you know when you're like on softball or something, and you have a sponsor, like Fifi's Nails or Bud's (laughs) Barbecue? I thought the Mercedes dealership would be a really good sponsor. Um... And then they pulled me aside and told me, no, honey, that's that's not what that is. Um, a sponsor is someone who's who's worked steps ahead of you and, and knows the book of Alcoholics Anonymous and can lay the kit of tools at your feet and show you how to live this life. That didn't sound like much fun. So I said, well, can he be my sponsor? Because i I'd willing to take anything. He laid at my feet. And, um, <laughs> honest program. Uh... And they said, no, honey, you need to find a woman. So, you know, I'm desperately searching for one, and I didn't ask any qualifications. She could have, you know, just gotten off treatment bus too. I didn't know. And uh, I said, hey, will you be my sponsor? And she said yes, and luckily enough, she had been sober for a while. And she had been watching me. I think there were a lot of people that had been watching my crazy ass that week. Um, and so I asked this woman to be my sponsor, and things didn't to work too well with us. Uh, that him, she told me I wasn't allowed to see him kind of grab a Um, Don't you know I'm 16? Don't you know I need to have a life? Don't you know if this deal isn't fun, then I'm not going to stay? And, uh, and so what happened was you guys taught me what fun could be in different ways. You guys taught me that it could be fun to sit at Denny's until 4 o'clock in the morning drinking the worst coffee you've ever had in your life. <laughs> you <Yeah. clears throat> know? Horrible on your kidneys. But... Um, and you taught me things like you could go to an AA dance, and you didn't have to go home with someone afterwards. Um, and 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 those were things you taught me in very slow increments. And the way you taught me that was through example. And I love, <laughs> I love the tradition, uh, attraction rather than promotion, because what are we attracting? What is the message? That I have to attract you with. Is my message self centeredness, irresponsibility, unloyal, lack of integrity, dishonesty? That was my message when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Today my message is different. Today my message is faith, hope, courage, honesty, brotherly love, service. These are my message today. These are the message that I get to give every time I stand up here. These are the messages I have to give you sitting in a room of Alcoholics Anonymous when someone reads how it works. That's the attraction I give today. And um, and you guys showed me how to do that. So, uh, so anyway, she showed up with him to my party. And that was the end of that sponsorship because... If I couldn't have him, she couldn't either. And uh, so I got another sponsor, and she had a lot of kids. So I knew she wasn't going to go near him. And <laughs> and she was married, and she had a successful relationship, and she went to women's meetings. What the hell is that all about, you know? Why would you do that? Um, and she began to show me why you would do that. And she began to teach me why you would do that. And then um, and then March of 92 I got a, we got a phone call my mother and I and by this point our relationship had been mended quite a bit because um, I had been sober a while and I had been trying to do the next right thing. I hadn't always done it consistently but I was giving in an effort at this point. And we got the call to come to Austin that uh, – I still do this every time um, – that my grandfather was in the hospital, and his blood pressure had dropped to zero, and it was time to come say goodbye. And so Mom and I got on a plane, and we flew to Austin, and we sat in a room in Seton Hospital – and it was my grandfather, two of my uncles, my mother, and myself. And we had a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my grandfather, who was laying there, and he was dying of lung cancer. And he had gone through uh, chemo and radiation for a long time. And so he was very sick, and he was very... Um, He was very tired and he was, um, hooked up to all these machines and tubes everywhere. And he said, I have one deadly disease and that's alcoholism. And if I don't take a drink today, I got a chance. And that, my friends, is the power and the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was what was given to me that day along with my six month chip. And I still have that chip. Um, And he died two days later. Um, His home group honored him and gave him his 12-year chip because he would have had 12 years three months later. And so they went ahead and gave him that. And he had 12 grandchildren. And I'm the seventh one. And on my seventh-year anniversary, my grandmother gave me his seventh-year chip. And those are the only two chips I still have today because I give the rest away. But those are mine. That's just for me. Because that is the truest and purest form of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the absolute unconditional love of one drunk for another. And that's what the deal's about. Because that came from God. That didn't come from that drunk laying in that bed. And that's awesome. That's the power of. Of this program. That's the power that's contained in the pages of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and that lives and breathes in the rooms and the meetings of AA. How awesome is that? We have been given the power to recover and help others. That is awesome. So, uh, before that happened, The day before that happened, my grandfather had asked my mother if we would come and take care of my grandmother. And my mother agreed. And she told me, she said, we can go now or we can wait a little while and go. And I said, no, she needs us. Let's go now. So we packed up and we moved to Marble Falls, Texas. Population Um. (laughs) 4,007. Okay. Um... Let me tell you about the AA young people in Marble Falls, Texas. You're looking at it. <laughs> you are looking at it, committee and all. Um, and I moved to and I moved to Marble Falls, Texas, and I left behind this wonderful group of uh, young people in AA that carried the message and lived the message and showed the message. And um, and I went to meetings with people that. Um, well, you know, they just had big fat guts, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: and they were old and they didn't get me, you know, and I didn't get them. And they would say things like, I dr- I spilled more than you drank. And I would say stuff like, well, if you hadn't spilled it, you'd have been here sooner, you know, and they would say stuff like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you guys taught me that you guys taught me that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization does not come with age, nor does it come with the amount of alcohol and drugs that I put into my body. It comes when I say, enough. It stops now. It stops when I say, I'm an alcoholic and I'm ready to do something different. And I come into the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and my seat's been paid for. I've paid my dues. And no one else gets to tell me otherwise. And uh I got real put out, and I got real tired of going to those meetings and hearing that kind of stuff and not being a part of. And so I gave up, and I quit going to meetings. And I would go and get my chip, you know, and I would go and do my token appearance once a month or whatever to support birthday night or, you know, cake or if they were having some food or something. Uh, sure didn't go for the cute guys, I can tell you that. Um, and uh that summer... And by the way, when you don't drink in the barn, drink in the field, drink at the dam, have random sex at the barn, at the field, or at the dam, Marble Falls is not an exciting place to live. (laughs) And you're kind of an outcast if you're not doing one of those six things, let me tell you. Um, And in July, I I had made it a few months, and and I was still off and on going to meetings, and um, I got a call from Florida. And the woman that had been my sponsor last, the woman with the children that was teaching me about women's meetings and teaching me about being a woman in in recovery, we got a call saying, um, you need to come quick. She's dying. She has cancer. And she probably won't live through the end of the week. And we've gotten her coffin picked out, and we've, you know, made arrangements for people to take the six children, and, you know, the husband's prepared, and... um, you, know, you need to understand that she looks very ill. She sh- you know, her, her head is bald from the chemo, and she's wearing a wig now. And, and I said, okay, and um, hung up the phone, called the airlines, made the arrangements. And the next day we got another call, and they said, don't come. She's not sick. She's been drinking. And that is the baffling and cunning powerful part of this disease. She had shaved her head. Picked out her coffin, told everyone she was dying, written a will, and told her husband she was going to be gone at the end of the week because she needed a way to conceal her drinking. And that was how she did it. And uh, so that was a blow. And I decided, sponsors, not for me. No, you're going to go out with my man or you're going to get drunk. I don't need any of that. I'm doing just fine on my own, thank you. And so that's what I did. So I proceeded through that next year on a complete dry drunk, and I was—I turned back into that violent, angry girl that people were afraid of but smiled at just in case. And, uh, you know, I did things like smoke on school property, and when the teachers would look at me, they would turn their backs because of the looks I would give them. You know, I had turned back into that hateful, cold, manipulative, conniving heartless woman and uh, and then I would have my mom say you want to go to a meeting tonight they like to do that a lot in Marble Falls Um, they always want you to go to a meeting Uh, and and I was very resistant and I would do it just to appease her every now and again just to get her off my back I would go to a meeting and it would be the same thing and I would hear the same thing from the same people and I'd say you know what you don't understand you don't know You don't understand. You don't know. And the fact of the matter was, I was listening with about 10% of my ear open. And it was my responsibility to keep coming back. And it was my responsibility to stay in that seat that I had paid my dues for. And it was my responsibility to seek someone out to help me work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I was not taught that AA comes to me. Yes, I am responsible, and I will put the hand of AA out there, but you better meet me halfway. Because this is a deal for people who want it and not for people who need it. And at that point in my sobriety, I was a person who needed it, and I was not a person who wanted it, unless you were him. And um <laughs> so I went away to college, met lots more hymns, did lots more dramatic drama queen, you know, Suicide attempts and, you know, all all that good stuff that we do. Um, And I got to a point in in the first semester of college, and I had actually gone to a meeting with my uncle who lived in the town I had gone away to college in. And so I met a woman at a meeting, and I, for some reason, remembered her name. And and one day it it, it had really gotten bad, and the pain had really gotten raw again, and, and that hole was gaping open. And I knew where to go. I knew where the solution was. And I knew the solution was inside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with another woman. And I finally got willing to do that. And I picked up the phone and I called her and I said, I need your help. I'm going to not. I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. And she said, come to my house right away. And I went over. And we started reading the big book. And we started reading the 12 and 12, which you know, I didn't even know that thing existed until then. Um, it's a great book, by the way. You should really read it sometime if you haven't. Um, and she, and she showed me things in there and I could identify and it kind of freaked me out because for a long time, I still back here had that lurking notion that I don't have a beard. I didn't drink out of a bottle, you know, with a brown bag around it. I didn't push a car. I didn't live under a bridge. So I'm not real sure. I hadn't done what page 30 talks about. We have fully conceded to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. I had not done that yet. This is the first step in recovery, it says. This is the first step in recovery. I had not taken the first step in recovery. Um, So anyway, I I worked with this woman, and and we did some work, and we got to that thing called the four-step. Scary. Um, I said, forget it, and I never called her back. I was absolutely terrified. I was absolutely terrified of I don't know what, but I was terrified. And so I just never called her back. And so things got worse. And I did some more geographical cures, and I met with some women, and we'd get one, two, and three down, and then I'd never call them again. I'd heard all these horror stories in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, the fourth step. Oh.
1: This step. Oh. <laughs> but I did Nine.
0: You know, so I thought that kind of made up for everything. Do not do nine, please, before you do four and five. I had to go back and make more amends for the amends I made without doing four and five than I did before I did it. So um, so I did some geographical cures. I moved around a lot. I ended up in Alabama. Um, uh, and... Then I moved to Dallas, and, and anyway, long story short, I ended up back in Marble Falls, Texas, still population 4,007, and, um, and it got really bad. And I decided, you know what, I just need to do it one more time. I just need to move somewhere else one more time, one more time. It's going to be different. I'd made that decision again. It's going to be different this time. So I moved to Austin and decided I was going to go back to college. And I started going to school, and in a matter of three months, it fell apart. It just absolutely fell apart. I was making great grades. I had made friends. I was, you know, it started looking good on the outside again, but I couldn't hold it together anymore. And I called my mom and I said, I'm checking out. I'm sorry. I can't do this anymore. It hurts too bad. I'm too tired. And she said, come to my house first. And I got my car and I drove to mom's house. And uh, she sat me through the night. And I got up the next morning and, sh- and I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a women's meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met a woman there and I said, I'm not going to make it. Will you please help me? I need your help. I need the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know it's the only thing that will save my life. And she said, sure, honey, but I'm moving to Houston in 30 days, so we've got to work quick. <laughs> concert yeah great so we got in the book and that's what we did and we worked quick and i met with her every single day and we did step work every single day and i read the 12 and 12 and i read the big book every day for 30 days and i did an inventory and it wasn't you know anything miraculous or spectacular but it was honest and it was the best i could do with what i had right then and um and so she left and she moved to Houston. And I found another sponsor. And I went through several sponsors for a while. And I met some hymns and did some more things like that. And um, and then I met a woman. And she was uh, what I had been looking for. She knew the book inside and out. She knew that if I had a problem, this was the solution. Didn't matter what he looked like. This was the solution. Um And she knew how to touch me in a way that no one else could. And that was with the facts. And that was with an iron fist. Because I'm the kind of alcoholic that it talks about in the book. You know, the one that they say is undisciplined. Yeah, that's me. Um, And she knew that. And she knew what it would take. And what it would take was to do the five daily things without excuse, without exception. You know, I was to get on my knees and I was to ask for help every day without exception, without excuse. I was to read something from the literature. I was to contact another alcoholic, preferably my sponsor. I was to go to a meeting, and then I was to get on my knees and say thank you every night, without excuse, without exception. Those were the things I was to do, along with the assignments of following the steps as they are laid out in the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous as well as reading the stories in the back of the book that helped me share your experience of how you found a power greater than yourself, which has kept you sober. Because I need you. I need the experiences that were placed in this book. That's what keeps me here today, you know. It's the experience that you had. It's the way that you stay connected. It's the way that you got disconnected and reconnected to that power that still keeps you here today. And she did things like have me read the 12 and 12, cover to cover, work the traditions, try to practice that in all my affairs, go to meetings, sign up for committees. You know, they had this committee at my home group, and it was the entertainment committee. You know, I, we did dances and, you know, fun fun fair things and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's supposed to be like a one-year commitment. Well, five years later, they let me off that committee. Um, <laughs> Only because I moved out of town and they called me for three months asking me how to run the dances. But um, that commitment not only pissed a bunch of people off because I'm kind of bossy, but <laughs> kept me sober, kept me accountable, and kept me responsible to a group, to a body of people that I respected and admired and didn't want to disappoint or let down. And in learning how to do that, I learned how to be respectful, accountable, and responsible to someone that I never loved before—myself. You guys gave me that through doing service. So I did that commitment for a while, and I had this sponsor, and she was really great, and she was on me all the time. And you know, I met with her once a week, and and we did our work. And she got me sponsoring other women, and I started sponsoring girls, and. I met this one, and we got in a lot of trouble, and there were a lot of hymns, and then more, and then some more. And and she taught me what it means to be a sober woman of, Al- of Alcoholics Anonymous. She taught me that it's okay to leave a dance without someone, or with someone, and still get up in the morning and feel okay about myself. Because just because I left with you didn't mean I have to do anything with you. And I didn't understand that before I came here. I didn't understand what it was like to be a lady. I didn't understand the awesome experience it is to be a woman sober in recovery and all that that entails. And the gifts that I have been given, the compassion and the understanding and the sensitivity that comes with being open and honest and willing and a participant inside the rooms, you know. And so there were a lot of women in my life, just like Julie, that um, that helped me helped me learn how to do those things. And it was a lot of trial and error. Um, but things, things got better. And I met a man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was really cute. I mean, he is. You know, I married him. And um,
1: <laughs>
0: he matched all the time. Can you believe that? He knew how to match even before I met him. And... And he, uh, he is my, I cannot express what it is like to have that fellowship in my home every day. I wake up with the fellowship. I wake up with someone that's on the common path, that's on the same journey that I am, that's going the same way. And we may do different things to get there from time to time. But we're on the same path and we're going the same way. And that's an awesome experience. And I never thought that was possible, you know. I'm married. I live in a house. I literally have a white picket fence. And um, I am so suburban, it's disgusting. I cannot even tell you. Um, I'm really tempted to put that airbrush license plate on my husband's car because... Everyone in my neighborhood would freak. Um, And my life is calm today. And that's something I never wanted before. You know, I wanted excitement. I wanted drama. I wanted grandiose. I wanted the spotlight. I wanted uh, the glitz and the glamour and the fame and fortune. And today I have peace and serenity and contentment and calm. And that's awesome. Sometimes it's boring, I will confess. But it is still awesome. It is still an amazing gift that I didn't even know I wanted. I heard one time in a meeting someone shared, and Hugh talked about this a little bit last night about the gifts that God has for us, and um they said that that there's this room in, in wherever God lives, and um there's a room there and it's and it's full of all these packages that are wrapped so gorgeously. And they're big, and they're little, and they're round, and they're square, and they're all shapes and all sizes, and they're absolutely phenomenal. And God takes me down this hallway, and there's a door down there, and there's a couple on the way, and, and he opens the door, and, and it's and it's my husband, and it's something I've asked for. It's something I've wanted. And he takes me to the next door, you know, and it's my friends and my family, and it's something I always wanted, and it's something I asked for, and it's something I worked towards. And then he takes me to the third door. And that's where all these amazing gifts are. And I say, What is this? And he responds by saying, These are all the things, my child, you simply didn't ask for. They were here for you all along. And that's what I can have in Alcoholics Anonymous, so long as I stay here. I have a whole room of gifts awaiting. All I have to do is stay here, do the work, and expect a miracle, because it will happen. It will happen. It happens to me every day that I stay sober. It happens to me every day that I get the opportunity to work with another alcoholic and see the light bulb come on. I mean, that's awesome. Have you ever seen, you know, when we come in, we're not very pretty. I don't care if you match or not, we're not pretty. And (laughs) our eyes are like, well, you know, we're the living dead. We are the living dead. And today, we are the brightest lights on the planet. That's my belief. We are the brightest lights. We exude God's love. We have that ability today. What an awesome gift. I mean, that's awesome. So um, I married this man, and he picked me up and swept me off to Houston. Um, and, and things were kind of difficult because I left my home group, and I left my sponsor, and, and I've been gone a month, and, um, and I got a phone call. And my sponsor in Austin uh, had gotten drunk. I have a lot of women that don't want me to ask them to sponsor them. I don't get that, but they don't after they hear my story. Um, But she had gotten drunk, and I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't know that I had it in me to find another sponsor again. I didn't know that I had enough faith in the women of Alcoholics Anonymous anymore because it had been shattered a few times. And then I thought about it and I looked back on where my life was when I wasn't connected to the program and when I didn't have that one-on-one connection with a sponsor and how absolutely miserable I was. And so I went through some sponsors in Houston and that was some adventures after, let me tell you. Um, and I, and I learned this, this past couple years that I've lived in Houston, I really have learned that, uh, it's a very broad and roomy highway that we're on. And there's room for us to all do it a little different, you know. And, um, but for me, I still needed, I still needed the iron fist. I still needed to be extremely accountable to someone. And so I went back to Austin and and I asked a woman there if she would be willing to sponsor me long distance. And she said, yes, she would. And so, you know, when people say willing to go to any lengths, um, I really do drive three hours to go see my sponsor because I am willing to go to any lengths. Um, thank God for free long distance on cell phones. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> my husband probably thinks the same thing. Um, and so through all of that, um, I have been able to maintain a level of comfort and peace today. And that hole isn't there anymore. excuse me it's there it will always be there today it has been filled today it continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller because i continue to feed it with god a.a the fellowship the big book service work you know that's what fills that hole today It's not pot and Michelob and Jack Daniels and men and money—all of the things that didn't fit anyway. It was like a vacuum for those things; it just sucked it in. Today, it's like Hugh said: it's the piece of the puzzle that fits. You know. Um, Last year, I got a call. I get a lot of calls, in case you guys didn't notice. (laughs) I should change my number. Um, I got a call, and my stepmother, with whom I have a, a very good relationship with today because of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, called and said that her her little sister had died drinking and driving, and would I please come to Dallas for the funeral. And I wasn't especially close, and to tell you the truth, I don't really like her family, but... That didn't matter. What mattered was, I'm a sober, responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when someone reaches out and needs me, I'm there today. And I have to place principles before personalities. Because if I don't, I'm in big trouble. And so I got in the car and I drove to Dallas. And um, there was all sorts of, you know, drama and chaos. And, uh, but we made it through. And I got to see my little brother, who we hadn't had a very good relationship. And um, he had become very, very active in his disease. And so I got to spend some time with him. And I left Dallas and I went back to Houston And the next Thursday, I was at a meeting, and I was getting ready to turn my cell phone off. And I got a call. Sorry. Um, and my little brother was in ICU, hooked up to life support. He had an overdose, and we needed to come sign the papers to have him taken off the machine. And I got in the car, and I went to Dallas, because that's what you guys taught me to do. It didn't feel good. I didn't want to do it. I didn't like it. It didn't look good, but that's what you guys taught me to do so I called my sponsor and I'm talking to her on the way and I've got Greg in the car with me and he's driving because I'm, you know, obviously not able to drive. And, um, and we get to Dallas and we pick my parents up from the airport cause they were in Arizona trying to get over my aunt's death that had happened the week before. And, um, and we drive and we get to the hospital and And the whole way up there and this is this is you guys, this is not me, okay And this a lot of people don't like that I say this because it sounds very cold and very callous. but what I heard was, some of us have to die so that some of us can live. And uh, that's what I thought. And when we walked into that room, what I saw was an alcoholic that wasn't suffering anymore. And I was able to go in there and say my goodbyes and know that that alcoholic was finally at peace. He didn't find that peace in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't have the opportunity to carry the message I've been given the privilege to carry. He carries a different message. He carries the message of what happens if we don't come in and do the deal. I am forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous because in the days and weeks and the months that have gone on since then, I didn't want to go to meetings. I didn't want to talk about this. I sure didn't want to feel it. But you know what? I got up, I got on my knees, I read a piece of literature. I called another alcoholic, I read the book, I went to meetings, and I got back on my knees and said, thank you. Because that's what you taught me to do. Because this is the program. It is a design for living that works in rough going. It was pretty rough going. And it worked. And I'm still here. And I still have a message of hope. Because that alcoholic died so that maybe, just maybe, Someone that's heard me tell this story can stay sober one more day, because I know that kept me sober one more day. You know I was able to stand up and speak at my brother's funeral. No one else in my family was able to do that. It was really funny because, you know, my dad doesn't know anything about AA and he's really kind of corny, and people at the funeral going, "She's a really good speaker." She's she's really good at speaking. My dad goes, yeah, she's an AA. She's a good, she speaks at, she speaks at conferences. She's on tapes and stuff. I'm going, Dad, we're at a funeral, you know. I'm not doing this for a living. I don't want people calling me, can you speak at my son's funeral? No, that's not what I do. Sorry, I don't have a tape for that. Um, give me a break. But the fact of the matter was my parents were very proud of me, you know. And I was able to stand there and represent Alcoholics Anonymous without anyone even knowing. You know, it's part of that attraction rather than promotion. I was able to be an attractive member of Alcoholics Anonymous that day. I was able to be a woman in recovery that can stand with her head held high with dignity and pride. And you guys gave me that. Being strong enough to say, do the work, read the book, go to meetings, work with others. Because for a long time it was about him and the dances, you know? And and it's not anymore. I love you guys, don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, the women are what kept this drunk sober. Well, okay, in the men, in the men it was in the beginning. Yeah, it was the men. But... <laughs> Things change, although some of you guys are pretty cute. Um, But the fact of the matter is is this, is that, you know, that happened last March, and um, I'm able to stand up here today and know that there was a lesson in that and know that I was able to come through it and get to the other side and even find a little bit of humor along the way because you guys taught me not to take life too seriously, and I haven't done that. I do take this program and Alcoholics Anonymous very serious because this is life or death for me, you guys. And um, it really means a lot to me that I've been able to be here and I really hope that somewhere along the way I've helped some of you. Thanks for keeping me sober.